friends, countrymen, Russians, welcome to Disenfranchised, a podcast about franchises that never were. They started with a movie and they had those aspirations. They wanted to go for it, but for some reason, they just couldn't make it work. Uh, I am one of your hosts. My name is Stephen Foxworthy and uh, my co-host sitting over there uh, taking off his mustache as he jumps off the side of a building. Whoa, easy there. That's Brett Wright. Hi, Brett. Uh, Hi, Stephen. Hi. Hi. How are you doing today, man? Uh, I'm fine. How are you? I'm, you know, I'm okay. I I watched this movie uh, earlier today, so I'm doing about as well as I could be. (laughs) Yeah, it sure didn't, you know, improve my spirits at all. (laughs) And what movie are we talking about today, Brett? Uh, We're talking about the 1997 Val Kilmer movie, The Saint. Yes, 1997's The Saint, starring Val Kilmer. Elizabeth Shue, the great Ray Gerbesia, uh, Alan Armstrong, Michael Byrne, um, some other people. I, there's a couple of smaller cameo. Oh, Emily Mortimer and Tommy Flanagan I spotted in this movie. Tommy Flanagan and his uh, telltale scar there on his face as one of the Russian henchmen. Man, what a movie, huh? Yeah, it's a movie, all right. It's, it's a movie, all right. Boy, howdy. Uh, so yeah, so we're watching, uh, we're talking about The Saint today, uh, which is a movie that I remember seeing as a child. Uh, I We went to the, the second run movie theater on the south side of Indianapolis, the Cinemark, I believe it's called. Uh, I honestly don't know if it's still in operation. Uh, it probably was at the beginning of this year, but the way this year has gone for movies, who even knows if it's still in operation or not? Uh, see our Artemis Fowl episode for more of our thoughts on the state of movies in 2020. Uh, but it's 2021 now. Happy New Year. I forgot to mention that up top. Happy, I was too busy getting my saint quote in the in the intro that I forgot to wish you all a happy New Year. So happy New Year. Happy 2021. We are recording this on, you know, the, the late side of 2020. This is probably our last episode record of 2020. But happy 2021 to you all. Uh, hope you made it. Hope you survived the holidays. And uh, now you get to listen to us talk about a Val Kilmer movie. So, yay? Yay. I mean, we're on the other side of 2020, so... I mean, at least some degree of yay. Yeah. It can't... mm, I'm not going to say that. I was about to say it can't get any worse. Don't you dare. Don't you put that evil on me, Brett Wright. Let's not say that. That that would be bad. Things that have, you know, but a few months now, things that have not aged well. Yeah, let's, let's not tempt the fates, please. Please, let's not tempt the fates. Uh, particularly this early into uh, into the year. Um, so yeah, we're talking about uh, The Saint, uh, a movie that I remember seeing as a child. Uh, only later did I realize that it was actually a TV show. Uh, Brett, do you, do you have any familiarity with this movie or this uh, the TV show or any of the other ephemera that uh, is involved with it? I don't, um, other than remembering the trailer and the commercials, because this came out post batman forever right it did yeah a couple years after so yeah so at the time batman forever was my favorite batman movie um so what's not to love it's a batman movie starring jim carrey yeah and it had my favorite batman villain two-face in it of course and so you know i got to see live action two-face played by tommy lee jones just chewing scenery left and right played by academy award winner tommy lee jones have you heard the story of how he took that role uh i have Okay. And, and also what he told Jim Carrey on set. So yes. I've, I've heard all of those stories. They're all let's, hilarious. Let, I mean, if you've not heard those stories, le, dear listener, uh, check. I mean, just type literally Tommy Lee Jones Two-Face into Google and you'll probably find all of them. Um, they are basically Tommy Lee Jones should not have been in that movie and should not have been in that movie with Jim Carrey. But you know what? They were in a movie together. It happened. We let it happen. We... Uh, paid good money to let it happen, actually. And uh, I don't know. That's that's something we have to reckon with for the rest of time. So, Yeah, because it, it also, you know, looking back, is probably the worst portrayal of Two-Face ever conceived on film. Uh, oh, without question. Terrible. It's terrible. It's real bad. Um, real bad. But at the, so at the time, I was like, man, I really like that Val Kilmer guy. He's my favorite Batman. I really want to go see his new movie. But I was, you know, I, was, eh, I never had an opportunity because my dad didn't really care to see it. And, you know, I was too young to go to the movies by myself. Sure. So never happened. This, 
Yeah, this movie is part of that like '90s wave of uh, boomers '60s '60s nostalgia. Like the late '90s, we get a lot of, and a lot of them ended up being failed franchise starters. But stuff like the Saint, the Mod Squad, just like um, the Beverly Hillbillies, like a lot of the stuff that was popular in the '60s got made into movies in the 1990s. And so part partially because of Nick at Night, there was at least some familiarity with a lot of that, a lot of those properties. But this was one that I was just not aware of because Nick at Night wasn't showing reruns of The Saint, of the old Roger Moore TV show, The Saint, or the, uh, the follow-up Return of The Saint from the 70s. So I had no context for this whatsoever, but it was Batman doing cool spy stuff. And hey, What's not to like about Batman doing cool spy stuff? Turns out a lot. <laughs> a lot. I, uh, I, like I said, I remember really liking this as a kid. I, I watched it in the theater. To be fair, any movie I saw in the theater as a kid, I liked. It wasn't, a, I think the first movie I saw in theaters that I didn't like was the movie Vertical Limit. Did you ever see Vertical Limit? No, it's not, it's not ringing any bells. The look on your face told me everything I needed to know. You have not seen Vertical Limit. It's, uh, it's I want to say Bill Paxton, Scott Glenn, I think. Robin Tunney is in it. It's about uh, mountain climbers uh, and like a bunch of them die. Uh, it's, um, it's not a good movie. Uh, and I remember, like, I think Chris O'Donnell might be in it too. Like I walked out of that movie going, I didn't, I didn't like that. Can can movies be bad? Like that was, that was the first time I realized that a movie might not actually be good. Um, the only mountain climbing movie I remember is uh, the Sylvester Stallone vehicle cliffhanger, which is probably that I, which I've not seen, but probably vastly superior to vertical limit in every conceivable way. Like probably. I remember going into it, knowing already as a child, knowing, and now I got to think, I got to find out when this movie came out. Cause this is going to bug me. But I remember like figuring out, okay, there's good, this, it's going to be X amount of people are going to survive. This is how the movie is going to end. 2000. So I was, I mean, I was a young teenager by this point. So it's probably a little too young to have this revelation. Like our movie's bad, but I just, I love movies. So it just never occurred to me that one could not be very good. And then I saw it and I was like, oh no, that's, that's not very good. <laughs> no, I mean, this, don't take offense to this, but it, it tracks for your personality. That You would figure that sort of thing out early. I, I not not early enough. I graduated high school in 2001, so this is the year before I graduated high school. I'm finally figuring out that movies could be bad. So, eh, I mean, there's some people that never figure that out. I, I feel. So. Uh, well, touche. Good point. Good point. Um, but yeah, no, I, uh, I I was not impressed with uh, Vertical Limit. Not as impressed as I was with 1997's The Saint uh, with Val Kilmer and uh, Elizabeth Shue. Uh, Red Jabega, directed by Philip Noyce. Uh, man, I I'm excited to talk around this movie. If that if that tells you anything, I'm just I think it's going to be a lot of fun talking around this movie. Uh, but before we talk around this movie, we actually have to talk um, about this movie for a little bit. Particularly, we have to talk about the plot of this movie, uh, which we will do in 60 seconds or less. Or your pizza is free. Uh, I mean, your podcast is free. Maybe your pizza too. We're not buying you pizza. Never mind. Forget I said that. Can you buy me pizza? Maybe. Maybe we can talk. Okay. I'm gonna hold you to that. Hey, yeah, hold me to my maybe. That's uh so in order to figure out which of us It's not a no. It's not a no, Stephen. It's also not a yes, Brett. <laughs> but you didn't say no. I mean you're my friend. I'll probably I'll probably buy you some pizza at some point or another. I mean it stands to reason. At some point I'll I'll be like, Yeah, I'll buy you some pizza. In like 20 minutes no oh that that's out so it's not happening today then correct yeah we are we're we're far far too far away from one another right now for to make that work feasibly unfortunately not at all though you, you throw some cash at me and i buy it myself it's that simple well then you're buying your own pizza i'm just paying for it that's that's not the same thing it's not no I'm I'm giving you money, not pizza. But then I'm using that money for pizza. I don't Look, know. Look, we're losing the plot, man. We're getting bogged <laughs> down in pizza politics. So I was all be... ready to move on, man. You you're the one that kept this pizza thing going. It's whatever. It's fine. In, in order to decide which of us will recount the plot of this movie, we flip, of course, our old friend the coin of justice. Brett, call the coin of justice in the air. Pizza. I mean tails. 
And oh, you, uh, it's tails. Hey, all right. Oh, I hate you so much. Okay. On a winning streak? I think I'm on a winning streak. That feels I good. think so. This is like the second or third in a row Might be that three. I've had to do. I'm on, a, I'm on a winning streak. Feels good, man. Well, I mean, after I mean, our first 10 episodes, I think I gave the plot maybe twice. So, yeah. It's 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 fine. It's time. I don't like it, but it's fine. All right. Uh, put 60 seconds on the clock for me, Brett, if you would be so kind. Look, tell you what, I'll do the plot in 60 seconds if you buy me some pizza right now. I'm not buying you pizza right now. Well, all right, then. I guess you're doing it. <laughs> all right. You're, you're, whenever you're ready, sir, you're good to go. Let me know. All right. Your time starts now. Simon Templar is uh, a professional thief. Uh, who uses the names of uh, Catholic saints as various identities, is also a master of disguise, uh, but he's stealing some stuff from uh, a Russian named uh, Tetriak, uh, played by the great Ray Trebezia, um, and uh, gets in a fight with his son, escapes with um, a microchip of some kind, uh, delivers it, and he's trying to get to $50 million. So the last thing, the Russians then hire him to, to steal a formula from Elizabeth Shue, who's playing a, a cold fusion specialist. Seconds. Oh, shoot. Um, so he, he woos her, falls in love with her, um, and she falls in love with him, uh, and he steals the formula from her. She ends up finding him, tracking him down. They get arrested by the Russians. Once they get arrested by the Russians, he escapes, they escape. She goes to the embassy. He ends up making cold fusion work. Tetriac tries to turn it around on the current seconds. sitting president. It blows up in his face because cold fusion actually works. And, um, Val Kilmer goes back to Elizabeth Shue and is a saint now for some reason, because he won. And that's time. That's, that's basically it. More or less. Yeah. Here's the thing. Um, there's a lot of filler in this movie, like more filler than I remembered from when I was a kid. Um, I remember this movie being like really fast paced and action packed. And I was expecting to like jump in and be like, yeah, the saint. And then I'm like, oh, man, there's, there's a lot of a lot of nothing happening. There's also kind a of, whole lot of stuff that doesn't make any sense and people just being dumb. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. My favorite, my favorite bit of this movie is when the inspector, played by the great Alan Armstrong, uh, brings uh, Elizabeth Shue in for questioning and starts listing off his aliases. And she goes, "Ah, oh, of course." And they look at her weird. And she goes, "All the names of Catholic saints." And they, the, the inspectors look really embarrassed that they didn't figure that out themselves. And I'm like, these are bad inspectors. Like these are just very bad police detectives that they can't figure this out. Now you work for Scotland Yard. How did you not make that connection yet? Exactly. How is, how is no one in Scotland Yard a Catholic? And how yeah. is it, and how is it that the presumably atheist scientist knows the names of Catholic saints? I mean, it's revealed later. She went to Catholic school, but still. Sure. So his, his $50 million thing, like just seems arbitrary. Like why did why is fifty million dollars his out point? Why couldn't it have been it's forty? A, it's a hundred percent arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. And particularly because at the end he's like really enthused about the idea of Elizabeth Shue selling her formula for cold fusion and being a trillionaire. Like he's really enthused about being married to someone who's filthy, stinking rich. He why would stop at fifty million if you could sell cold fusion and get trillions? Well, but then he turns around and says it's fine, and he thinks it's a great idea for her to sell it for free. Which which the, which seems to be like a complete 180 in terms Where of where like, he was literally seconds before. Well, the, this is this is what his character is supposed to be based on the source material and every other adaptation. Is he's Correct. like a Robin Hood character? He yes. takes money and gives it to people. He doesn't just keep it all for himself. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the source material uh, aspects of this uh, because the Saint Simon Templar, the Saint, got his start in. I want to say the late 20s in a series of books by author Leslie Charteris um, and was apparently a very popular book character. Uh, those books ran until the, the early 80s. So pretty popular, long running book series that I never knew existed until today. I was today years old when I learned that. There was even some books that he collaborated with some other authors on that got released in the mid-90s. So it even went on into the 90s. Wow. James Patterson style. Bow, bow. And then, I mean, you've got Hollywood adaptations, like B-movie adaptations in the, uh, like from the 30s to the 50s. Uh, there was a radio play with Vincent Price in the 40s. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, uh, the adaptation that is probably best known, the 1960s television series, which is where 
Roger Moore gets his start. Roger Moore, of course, best known as Bond, James Bond, the longest running of the Bond actors, uh, was Bond probably far longer than he should have been, quite frankly. And I say that as someone who watched all of the Bond movies earlier this year. Did they really start to drop off in quality near the end there? I mean, he's just, he's he's old and he's doing like by, by uh, View to a Kill, which is actually a pretty good one. Um, you can tell when it's Roger Moore and when it's his stunt double fairly obviously just because uh, no man Roger Moore's age moves like that stunt double does. You know, it's just, it's kind of like the complaint that a lot of people had about the Irishman when Robert De Niro is curb stomping a guy, you know, you're like, that's not a way a 40 year old man curb stomps a guy. That's the way a 70 year old man curb stomps a guy. So, you know, yeah, that's fair. But I mean, yeah, he's just, and, but, and if they had like adapted it to do like a, uh, a thing similar to what they did in Never Say Never Again, where you've got like an aging James Bond kind of on his way out of the game, that would have made a lot more sense, but it's just a straight Bond movie. So, I mean, you know, do with that what you will, but yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was real weird. Um, but that's still one of my favorite more, Bond. I'm honestly, more, more is probably my least favorite Bond. We'll, we'll litigate the Bond franchise at another time, probably, but uh, Roger Moore, uh, and it's it's interesting because in the same way, that, like Remington Steel is the name of the show. I was trying to think of. Good heavens, my brain. In the same way that Remington Steel kind of paved the way for Pierce Brosnan to be Bond, The Saint really kind of paved the way for Roger Moore to be Bond. Because similar to Timothy Dalton, similar to Pierce Brosnan, both of whom we've discussed before, they wanted to get more on Bond a lot earlier than they did, but he had commitments to The Saint, and so he couldn't go on to do it eventually he left the saint and then when he did they did a a a second series called um return of the saint starring egan ian ogilvie an actor named ian ogilvie as the saint in those so um i mean but yes he's he's depicted largely in almost all the rest of those as kind of a robin hood-esque figure a robs from the rich gives to the poor kind of master thief spy kind of character this character is not that at all. This is kind of, to, to borrow a phrase you're fond of, uh, Simon Templar in name only. Yeah. Uh, he, he seems like he's supposed to be like a sort of like an anti-hero version of James Bond. But, and I guess he sort of comes off like that in this movie, but not for the same reasons. Right. And I mean, like also I think the the Master of Disguise element is something that was kind of created for this movie or maybe something they even pulled from another script and kind of put into this movie, but it's not really there in the original text, at least not to the same degree from what I've read. Uh, And also the Catholic saint thing is not a part of the, like in the books and in the TV show uh, Templar, from my understanding, I've not actually engaged with any of that material. Unfortunately, Uh, Templar would be, uh, he would usually use uh, aliases that had the initials S and T because S and T is the abbreviation for the word saint, you see. Yes. And he would always leave uh, the little stick figure with the halo. over Which his is head. the pen emblem that Elizabeth Shue gives Valcomer at the end of this movie. Yeah. Which is, does that mean that this makes this an origin story? Maybe that's yes. what this is. Maybe that's why he's not a Robin Hood type. Okay. Because this is supposed to be an origin story. And he becomes that at the, I mean, that would make a lot more sense. Uh, It doesn't make me like this movie anymore, but it certainly helps this movie make a lot more sense. It actually makes me like the movie a little bit more. Okay. Not much. It might've just, it might've just earned an extra half star for that. I've made that connection. But, But I mean, at no point is that ever really clear in the text of the film. But uh, he does end up at the Robin Hood place, I suppose. Yeah, which, I mean, you know, they wanted this to be a franchise. So, of course, you you got to start with his origin story. Sure. And not that you have really any motivation for that turn. It's just like, we have to get him here. So he falls in love with her. She wants to do it. And so because he loves her, he goes along with it. Sure. That makes sense. You got to make a lot of leaps. To make that entire relationship make sense. It's, oh my word. The, okay, so he is literally, he literally spends the entire movie lying to her f- about one thing or another, but she is so gaga head over heels for him because she is 
weird. Like, I mean, that's, that's her whole character. She's weird. Um, that she just falls for him and decides, screw it. I don't care if he's literally lied to me about everything. Uh, I love him and I'm going to marry him. Yeah. I didn't... Like that strikes me as very problematic. Yeah. Like really bad. And I, I don't know how to make it work. That doesn't, that just, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Look, I love Elizabeth Shue's character in this movie. I love the acting she's doing. Um, I love the performance. Uh, but yeah, that whole thing doesn't make any sense. No. Uh, so there you go. I uh, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, writer of this um, of this movie. The uh, the he gets the sole story credit and one of uh, one of two screenwriting credits. Uh, a man by the name of Jonathan Hensley, uh, who has in addition to writing The Saint, uh, two years earlier wrote a little film called Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, a few years, uh, the next year would write a little movie called armageddon uh in 2004 would write a little movie called the punisher starring tom jane and uh john travolta a movie Uh, that i like i like that punisher movie and i will i'm not afraid to admit it we'll get to talk about it one of these days um there have been three punisher movies uh that have been released theatrically uh all of which were intended to kind of start their own franchise so we could we could do like a practically a whole month of punisher if we wanted to we could. We could. Doesn't that sound like fun? No, it doesn't. Except but, maybe one week. One week might be fun. But after that. Uh, also, the same year that... So so two more things worthy of note in Jonathan Hensley's uh, writing screenwriting resume. He's also directed a couple things that uh, are honestly... Oh, no. He also directed The Punisher. So there you go. He not only wrote, but directed The Punisher. Uh, but a couple other things worth mentioning... Uh, we talked um, a couple weeks ago in our uh, – we've actually talked a couple times over the past month about uh, director Joe Johnston and uh, how much we love him and the revelation that you had in our Rocketeer episode that he directed a movie, uh, a favorite movie of yours from your childhood, 1995's Jumanji, which was written by Jonathan Hensley. Wow. Yeah, the same year he did Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, so 1995 was his big year. He directed Die Hard with a Vengeance and Jumanji. Um, and then he followed it up with The Saint and Armageddon. Uh, he also wrote several episodes, because this is one of those things I said I would point out whenever I saw it, several episodes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Wow. Look, look guys, we don't plan this stuff out. This Honestly, these, these are all randomly selected episodes. and There's some weird through lines here. How did this happen? Yeah, I mean, it. hey, it's fun when it, it's always nice when it happens good, but this is kind of one of those fun happy coincidence kind of things um he is currently making a movie called the ice road uh his last couple of movies uh he wrote the screenplay for a movie called next which feels like something we would cover uh and then he uh wrote and directed a film called kill the irishman which i don't know anything about i mean does it mean deleting that movie off of the netflix queue or i mean not not opposed to that I mean, it's got Ray Stevenson, Christopher Walken, and Vincent D'Onofrio in it, so I might have to watch this movie, actually. Yeah. Because that does sound like a really fun... And guess who else it has in it? Guess who else? Val Kilmer, my friend. Uh, I was about to say Val Kilmer. Wow, all right. Yeah. Cool. So there you go. So he's the one that they... So he was not the original author or a screenwriter author like i'm talking about a book or something he is not the original screenwriter on this production um they actually had brought on so they were trying to get actually they were trying to get pierce brosnan to play the saint uh but they could not uh for this movie they in the early 90s paramount got the the rights to make the film they brought on robert evans as producer uh steve zalian as screenwriter, uh, the guy who did uh, Schindler's List, Awakenings, Gangs of New York. Man, he's done a lot of really great movies that he's screenwritten. What else? Around this time, he had done Awakenings, Schindler's List, Searching for Bobby Fischer, Jack the Bear, Clear and Present Danger, which he had worked on with Philip Noyce, the director of this film. Uh, And the year before, he would have written Mission Impossible, which kind of makes him a really good choice for this movie. 
and they got Sidney Pollack as director uh, and Ray Fiennes as to, to basically be the saint. He read the script and decided it wasn't really anything he hadn't seen before. Uh, fast cars breaking into Swiss banks. It wasn't original. So ultimately he passed. Uh, and then they gave the script over to uh, David Brown, who had written such uh, adaptations as Jaws and Driving Miss Daisy uh, before finally getting Jonathan Hensley on board uh, as the a, a lot. Then his story is very similar to what we see here. There are some obvious differences. It does get cleaned up a little bit. The, uh, the other screenwriter, I'm guessing, uh, brought a lot of that to the table as well. His name is Wesley Strick. Uh, so I'm guessing he brought a lot of that to the table. Wesley Strick, who is famous for writing. Uh, he wrote several episodes of The Man in the High Castle, Martin Scorsese's Kate Fear, uh, Mike Nichols' Wolf. So, I mean, he's got some impressive credits as well, to be sure. Uh, but then, uh, and so at that point, they bring on Philip Noyce. Philip Noyce, he's an Australian journeyman director. Uh, we talked about journeyman a couple weeks ago with Ron Howard and Solo. He doesn't really have a specific voice. Uh, doesn't really have specific themes that he's trying to to get through, um, but he's directed a lot of stuff. Started in Australia, and uh, came to America, and just started directing. I mean, he's directed a lot of movies I don't really know, but he directed the Harrison Ford Jack Ryan movies. Those are worthy of note. Uh, he directed the thriller uh, Sliver. He directed the Mel Gibson film Patriot Games. Uh, the Denzel Washington movie, The Bone Collector, uh, The Quiet American. Um, so he's just kind of a, a guy you call in to direct the movie. Future episode of this show, Salt. Uh, so, I mean, you know, he's 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 got a lot of stuff under his belt, but none of it really um, none of it really has that. You know, you don't know what a Philip Noyce movie is as you're watching a Philip Noyce movie. Same as a Ron Howard movie. So and I honestly this movie is kind of forgettable in, in terms of its direction. Not really a lot of dynamism here. Uh, I started to forget it as soon as I stopped watching it, honestly. Yeah. It's um, it's, it's not, it's, it's not a very, it's not a great movie. It's really not. <laughs> because it, it's the funny thing, like it, as much as I, I liked Elizabeth Shue's performance, like she doesn't get to do much beyond that. Like the first half. Yeah. She's not doing a whole lot. She's running. She's yelling. She's that's about it. I mean, it's it's not it's woman in a '90s action thriller syndrome is what it is, man. Women didn't really get to do a lot in these '90s action movies, uh, not really, sadly. No, um, and she got a lot to do in the first half of this movie. A lot of character development, a lot of uh, opportunities to show off the weird eccentricness that she. I think she does really well with this character. I, I get the same impression from her in this performance that I get from uh, uh, Kristen Stewart. Is her name right? Uh, um, who gets a lot of flack for not being a good actress? Mm -hmm. But you see something like Underwater, and you're like, "Well, okay, she's she's not a bad actress. She just makes choices, and it, well, sometimes those choices come off as bad acting." Part part of it, I think. Well, part of the Kristen Stewart problem. I've I've never been a huge fan of Elizabeth Shue. Just personally, that's my own bias, but. Uh, I think the Kristen Stewart problem is if you think she's a bad actress, you've probably only ever seen her in Twilight and um, like Meryl Streep couldn't make that interesting. Very true. Like it's, it's bad material. It's a bad script. Uh, and if you're given as an actor, if you're given bad material, uh, you got to work overtime to make it sing. And sometimes even the best actors can't pull that off. Um, so I don't, I, I think she's a great actress. I've seen, I've not seen the Twilight films, but I've seen her in other stuff and I've liked her in everything else I've seen. I even liked her in Underwater, a film I wasn't particularly fond of. So I was, but that's, that, that was, well, but that was, that's probably, that probably wanted to be a franchise based on the end of that movie. So we'll probably talk about it. We'll probably talk about it at some point. Absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep our, our ears to the ground. But yeah, based on the ending, I, uh, I definitely see how you get there for sure. Um, so I yeah I would say Kristen Stewart I also agree Kristen Stewart is a good actress despite yeah. what people think. Um, but yeah, and I and whereas I am I'm less a fan of what Elizabeth Shue is doing in this movie. I tell you who I am really fond of and who kind of makes this movie work to the degree that it can in this movie uh, is Ray Chabasia, uh, one of the great all time that guy actors. Like whenever you need an actor to be like um, someone uh, like. 
vaguely from the Eastern Bloc, you call Ray Gerbega, Ray Gerbega in. Like he is freaking phenomenal. Uh, he just chowing down on the scenery left and right, just eating it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But he's like one of those actors who usually shows up in bit parts. So it was really nice to see him like be the main villain. I think this is the biggest role I've ever seen him have. Um, but of course, he's the homeless man in Batman Begins. He's a, a doctor in Mission Impossible 2. Uh, he's Boris the Blade, a.k.a. Bo- Boris the Bullet Dodger, a.k.a. Boris the Sneaky Fucking Russian in Snatch, uh, which is my favorite Guy Ritchie movie. Uh, I've watched that movie so many times, and I think Ray Beja is great in it. But like, he's just he's like this guy. He just like plays vaguely Eastern Bloc menaces. He's a Serbian actor. I think I don't know if I mentioned that or not. Um, but he's just he's great and everything he shows up in, and I think he's he is to me the best part of this movie as uh as uh Tetriac. Is that his name? I, I forgot the guy's name already. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Tetriac. Tetriac, yeah, it is okay. But yeah, he is he is my favorite part of this movie by a country mile. He's he seems like he's having the best time of anybody in this cast for sure. I I mean sure, it's fine. I mean, and, but again, that's a difference of opinion, I think, for, for each of us. Like, we're each going to latch on to something different, potentially. Well, yeah, it's like trying to grasp onto a lifeboat in the middle of a freezing ocean. Like, it's, Any there's port in a storm, really, yeah. Yeah, there's so much. You were like, I just want something to like about this movie. Just give me something. I don't care what it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, yeah. For me, it was your beige. For you, it was shoe. I mean, it, and it's it's fine, man. It's fine. Um mm-hmm. We have differences of opinion all the time. We do. We do, which is part of what makes this podcast uh, so fun. Uh, I was also really happy to see, although he wasn't given much to do, uh, Alan Armstrong, who I love as he was Inspector Teal in this movie, who is a character from the books. He's kind of the Inspector Lestrade to Simon Templar's Sherlock Holmes, kind of the, the foil character. Uh, He's played as a complete doofus in this movie, which I think Armstrong does well, but we'll talk, we'll have other opportunities to talk about Armstrong. He's in the movie Krull. He's in the movie Van Helsing. Uh, But I, of course, know him best as a theater nerd that I am as the original uh, Tenardier from the West End production of Les Miserables, uh, where he sings Master of the House and sings it beautifully. Yeah, I don't don't know him from that. I don't know him from any of that stuff. I didn't recognize the guy. uh, I mean, that's fair. But is, I, you know, now that you mentioned that, that he's a character from the books, though, that really, I think, uh, I think we can really hit the cart before the horse button, because uh, mm-hmm. he's barely in this movie, but he's supposed to be a bigger character. So. Right. I mean, he's he's not a very big actor at this point outside of Great Britain. Um, so, I mean, this is a big American blockbuster movie and he's he's barely in it. So, I mean, that's not terribly surprising, but you can see how someone like him would take this role and to be like, hey. This might be a good way to get my foot in the door um, for American films. He's also in a film that I know you love, Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. Okay, all right. He plays the High Constable in Sleepy Hollow. To be fair, it's been a long time since I've seen Sleepy Hollow. Fair enough. If I were to watch it now, I'd probably absolutely be Leo DiCaprio. Like, oh, oh, I see him. I see that. I know who that guy is. Doing the point with the beer in your hand. Doing the point with the beer in my hands. Yeah. I mean, and he also plays kind of one of those similar types of characters in Van Helsing, which, again we'll get to one of these days, but, um, but yeah, it's, um, and you know, I, I like Alan Armstrong. I like to see him in movies. I was very excited to see him in this movie. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a bummer that he didn't really have much to do and that his character was played, uh, or his character was sketched. So, um, ignorantly, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, at the end, I definitely got the impression that, like, was this supposed to be built up more? Was this supposed to be like a catch me if you can situation? Was it supposed to be like, ah, you almost got me, but you didn't. Right. But, but it wasn't at all because that not. wasn't built up at all. Like, no, in fact, his character is so inconsequential to the overall plot. Like, you get the sense that he's been hunting Templar for a long time. Like, Templar is his white whale, doesn't even know Templar's name. Uh, and of course, you know, comes so close to catching him there at the end. But I mean, it it's it's he's a secondary antagonist at best. Yeah, at, at best. best, at best, at best, because uh, really the secondary uh, antagonist is the character is the guy that plays Ray Trebejo's son, whose name is uh, Valery Nikolaev as Ilya Tetriak. I remember. So the, there's a scene early in the movie 
where he leaves um, Ray Gervais's, uh press conference as he's like talking about how great Russia is. And um, Tetriak is a very populist type of character, uh, not dissimilar from, uh, you know, any, any politician that's really popular with the people, but not really anyone else. I'm not going to mention any names, but you guys can probably think of an example, perhaps maybe less extreme than some of the examples that might readily pop into your head. But his son gets up to leave and, you know, he's like, how does it look for the leader's son to leave in the middle of uh, his big speech? He goes, how does it look for the leader's son to piss his pants on live TV? And he walks out. And as a kid, I thought he opened his watch and he had a lighter in his watch. and He's leaning down to like smoke, like light a cigarette. Um, He's not. He's actually opening his watch to reveal a, a hidden stash of cocaine, which he's about to snort up his nose. And I remember telling my parents after I saw this movie uh, that I wanted to watch like his because I thought it was really cool. And they got really concerned for a second. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I want a lighter in my watch. Like, that wasn't a lighter, son. I was like, what do you mean? And they said it was, it was that was cocaine. He was going to sniff drugs up his nose. And I went, oh, then I guess I don't want one of those. What do you mean you guess you don't want one? <laughs> I, uh, I, will, I will not comment on whether or not I still don't want to watch like that. But <laughs> I guess... Look, man, 2020 was a rough year. 2020 has been a rough year. <laughs> You're not lying about that. <laughs> maybe, maybe I do want one of those watches. <laughs> I just don't know where I'm going to keep uh, keep uh, keep it. How I'm going to keep it fueled? I guess is my concern. Yeah, everybody figures it out. <laughs> I guess. Uh, I guess. Oh, that's fun. Um, uh, but that guy, that guy, uh, is he really bad? Like at I least. Be- like the actor, the performance? Yeah. Is he really bad? He's he's not very good. No, he's no. The um, be- the beginning when he was like, what does he say to him? Like you can you can suck something and it just is so awkward. Suck was, me sideways is what yeah. he says. Yeah. I was like, look, and I thought Gavin Rossdale and Constantine was bad. Like line <laughs> reading. I like, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. He is a Russian actor. I get the impression that English is not his first language. Uh, because I'm looking over his filmography, and um, yeah, there's a lot of Russian words on this filmography. That's uh, I mean, he does show up in Steven Spielberg's The Terminal, uh, but for the most part, it's it's a lot of Russian films. Um, so I'm guessing this is a um, Dominique Pignon in um, Alien Resurrection situation, where he's speaking most of his lines probably phonetically, without really getting um, like the diction and all the other stuff right on. Um, would be my guess without knowing a lot about the situation that would be my guess oh okay then i, I can forgive him then I, I won't insult him by saying he's as bad as gavin rossdale and constantine then because <laughs> english I mean, isn't his first language i can't really hold that against him is is that the worst performance we've seen yet in one of these in one of these movies that we've covered the worst performance we've seen during this podcast and possibly the worst performance i've ever seen in a movie ever Wow, that's strong words from Brett Wright, ladies and gentlemen. Look, he's not an actor, and it shows. I'm, yeah, you're you're not wrong. It it's fairly evident that he is not an actor. Um, but oh, you know but who that, is? But that character gets a really cool scar. You think he comes back later in a sequel? Uh, if he doesn't, I'm very disappointed. Because here's another thing: uh, in the books, uh, Simon Templer probably would have just murdered those guys. But in this movie, uh, no, he he lets them stand trial for their crimes. Which so often in this movie, um, Simon Templar is in a situation where I'm just like, kill him. Like, just kill him. Particularly if he's like not the like pillar of morality, quote unquote, that he becomes, quote unquote, at the end of this movie. Like, if you're a professional thief, you, you got to get your hands dirty, man. And you're decidedly not getting your hands dirty, intentionally not getting your hands dirty. Yeah. And then, and vice versa, too. Like yeah. there's a lot of times where like they're under orders to kill him. They're, they, they want to bring in Elizabeth Shue's character alive. Mm. They're supposed to kill him. Correct. And they say that so many times in this movie, we're going to have to kill him. Shame. We have to kill him. Let's kill him now. Hold on. Like They're all in on killing this guy. Yeah. But at the same time, they're not because they have so many opportunities to do so. And then don't. Correct. Because he's got plot armor and he's the main character and he's not supposed to die. So we're going to play Russian roulette with him anyway. Absolutely absurd. Absolutely absurd. Ridiculous. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's just one of the things about this movie that just it's it's bad. Um, 
so Val Kilmer, let's let's talk Val Kilmer because this is Val Kilmer at the end of his um, like Hollywood like leading man run that he has, um, and he has a really good run. Uh, this I would say this is right at the end of his big stretch, which begins I, I would say in the eighties with real genius technically really technically if we want to get into it he's in top secret in 84 real genius in 85 top gun in 86 willow future episode willow in 88 the doors in 91 Um, this is a pretty unimpeachable run he's having uh he does true romance in 93 tombstone also in 93 possibly my favorite val camera performance Oh, without a qu- without a question in my mind, that is absolutely my favorite. Uh, I'm your Huckleberry. I'm your Huckleberry. I got two guns, one for each of you. Uh, so good. <laughs> so so good. good. So good. Uh, he's he's Batman in '95. In '95, he is also in my all-time favorite action movie, Michael Mann's Heat. He is amazing in that film. That film is just top to bottom perfect. It's a perfect movie. I I defy you to find something wrong with that movie. It's so good. Have you watched Heat yet? Nope. No excuse, man. I gave you a copy no, of Heat. Yeah, no, there's no there's literally no excuse for me to have not watched it. The <laughs> so. only the only excuse you have is that it's a three hour long movie. That's the only excuse. It's a long ass movie. I get it. It's totally worth your time to sit down and watch it though, because it is amazing. I'm probably overselling it. You'll probably watch it and go, that was boring. And I don't care because it's freaking perfect. It's so good. No, see, I don't I I'm not the kind of person that at least I don't think I am. Because uh, I, I make statements like this and usually the person I'm talking to looks at me weird. Um, I'm not I don't feel like I'm the kind of person that takes people's opinions to heart like that. and be like, oh, well, you talked it up so much. I can't possibly like it now. <laughs> I, I don't feel like I'm, I don't feel like I'm that kind of person. So I, I usually go into these sort of things, you know, with an open mind. So I'll let you know at some sure. point when I watch Heat. So 95, I would arguably say Val Kilmer's best year. Then where do you go from Michael Mann's heat? There's nowhere to go but down. Uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau, the ill-fated Island of Dr. Moreau, uh, which was supposed to be a Richard Stanley movie. It becomes a John Frankenheimer movie. Uh, That's a whole thing. He does uh, opposite Michael Douglas, The Ghost in the Darkness, about two hunters hunting lions, Uh, a movie like this one I remember enjoying when I watched it when I was younger. Don't know if it would hold up now. Uh, he does The Saint in 97, Prince of Egypt in 98, and then it starts to go off the rails. At First Sight in 1999, which is a movie where he plays a blind guy who gets his sight back uh, and falls in love with a lady. He is in the Oscar winner Pollock in 2000, but I don't think his role is that large. And then also in 2000, he heads up the movie. 2000, 2001, that's, those are the years we were obsessed with Mars. There's like three or four movies that came out that are all about Mars in 2000, 2001. Red Planet is one of them. Uh, another, It's the one that's not directed by Brian De Palma because the one that's directed by Brian De Palma is called Mission to Mars. And it's based on a Disneyland ride. And we will cover it on this podcast one day. Yeah, but one of those is also a John Carpenter movie, though. So Yes, Ghosts of Mars, which is 2001. Yeah, it's not bad. I it's mean, not I good. Have- yeah, well, I mean, I look, I'll be honest, I haven't watched it since it came out, but I remember sure. liking it. Here's the thing. I, I a couple of years ago, I did sit down and watch all the John Carpenter movies. The good John Carpenter movies that are good are incredible. The John Carpenter movies that are bad are still pretty freaking bad. Um, he's got some stuff in the middle that's decent. But the one thing you can say about the guy is when he's making a movie that's his movie, it's exactly what he wants to make. And so I find it difficult to fault him. Even on his bad movies, there's still some interesting stuff happening. Um, even in the movies of his, I straight up don't like, like Vampires or Escape from L.A. Like he's trying stuff. Uh, Ghosts of Mars, by the way, fun story, uh, was basically supposed to be um, Escape from Mars. And the Ice Cube character was supposed to be Snake Plissken. Oh, that makes me really sad now. Right? Because that would have been on paper. That sounds amazing. Doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but no, didn't happen for some reason or another didn't happen. And then you get this run of Val Kilmer movies that just the Salton sea, which I've heard referenced and I don't know anything about in 2002. 
He plays a porn star in 2003, John Holmes in Wonderland. And then you've got like The Missing, Blind Horizon, Spartan, Stateside, that really weird uh, movie Mindhunters about a bunch of profilers who go to an island and have to try to fight a serial killer. Tim and Christian Slater and LL Cool J. Uh, it sounds interesting on paper. It's not. I watched that one shortly after it came out on video. Uh, and then he plays Colin uh, Farrell's dad in Alexander. He is gay Perry in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is great. And he is great in that role in 2005. But, af- but I mean, really, by that point, Val Kilmer is gone from the public consciousness. By that point, it's like, oh, is, is Val Kilmer coming back? Like, so far gone was he from our minds at that point. So I would say 97, 98 is kind of the end of his run. He makes a couple of attempts in the years following, but I would say the saint and God's the, the saint and Prince of Egypt, not gods of Egypt, ugh, not gods of Egypt. Um, but the saint and Prince of Egypt, those are kind of his last two hurrahs before he's done. And yeah. part of that was, he was just like, apparently reportedly very difficult to work with. Well, that's disappointing. People like didn't want to hire him, didn't want to work with him. And so, I mean, you know, you, you're, you become a really big star and that tends to go to your head. Like he was supposed to be the lead of Island of Dr. Moreau uh, and then decided about halfway through production, I want to take the smaller role instead. And so they cast David Thewlis as the lead and, or maybe halfway through negotiations, maybe not halfway through production, but the Island of Dr. Moreau is one of those movies that is just fraught from top to bottom like you talk about difficult hollywood productions it was not supposed to set up a franchise which is why we'll never really get a chance to talk about it unless we ever decide to talk about richard stanley but there is a documentary about it that i will recommend uh, because it is very good and i need to figure out what it is called so i can recommend it because i don't remember what it is called Uh, it is apparently called lost soul the doomed journey of richard stanley's island of dr moreau It's a 2014 documentary directed by David Gregory. Uh, I saw it a few years ago and it is, it is fantastic. Um, Highly recommend if you have the means uh, to, to track it down. It's probably one of the two best movie documentaries I've ever seen. Uh, The other being uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. So. Well, I mean, you you know, it's bad if they made a documentary about the making of your movie. Uh, I was going to ask though, like on a scale of Mario Brothers to like, I don't know, an MCU film, where where does it fall on that scale? Uh, I would say maybe even worse than Mario Brothers. Damn. So yeah. it, re- it resets the bar for bad. My it's, God. Like, I mean, the director was like fired halfway through the production, but uh, snuck back on in costume to actually appear in the movie as an extra. It's all location shooting, unlike Solo, uh, which wasn't most which mostly wasn't filmed on location so like yeah that happened with solo but with this it's like middle of production they completely change course um marlon brando is being insanely difficult which is kind of stock and trade for him late in his career like he's he decides at one point that he's just going to wear an ice bucket on his head like that's a character choice that he's going to make uh and so he's just running around with an ice bucket on his head for most of the movie. Uh, There's a little person because they cast very odd looking people to play like the beast creatures. And there's a a really odd little person that he just took a shine to and just like, okay, this guy's coming with me everywhere. This guy's in every scene I'm in. Uh, And mini me from Austin powers is kind of a, a, a joke on kind of a riff on that character from Island of Dr. Moreau. Um, because he's essentially Dr. Moreau's mini-me. The the Lost Soul documentary is actually on Amazon Prime and Tubi as of the time of this recording. Uh, so able to stream if you have Amazon Prime. If not, Tubi is a free service. It's just got ads. So definitely check it out. It is well worth your time to watch. Even if you haven't seen Island of Dr. Moreau and don't know what a cluster hug it is, worth checking out the documentary because it's really, really good. Interesting. But yeah, kind of, and and after that, Richard Stanley didn't make a movie for decades, uh, and then um, he made uh, *Color Out of Space* last year, which was pretty good. Yeah, well, one of the few H.P. Uh, Lovecraft adaptations that actually doesn't suck, and you know, gets the point of the material. Yeah, so I mean, and that's uh, and 
that's Richard Stanley. So, I mean, and he wasn't a, an acclaimed director when he took over Island of Dr. Moreau either. Why did we start talking? Oh, Val Kilmer. Right. I was like, why Why were we talking about Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau? Uh, you know, Val the, Kilmer. The Saint, Val Kilmer, you know, yes. episode. Back, Any, back on track. Anything we can do to not talk about this movie. I understand. But like the things I remember from this movie from when I was a kid, I remember the Friends, Countrymen, Russians line, which is why I started off the podcast with it. Uh, I remembered, uh, weirdly, I remembered Elizabeth Shue's line reading of We Were Orphans, Bastards at Best from the end of this movie. I don't remember what the, I didn't remember what the context was until I watched this movie again. But I remembered that line and that line reading. Not sure why. Stood out to me as a kid, I guess. Uh, And of course, I remembered wanting uh, a lighter watch, which I found out later was not a lighter watch. Like, those are the main things I remember from this movie from when I was a kid. It's it's not a super memorable movie. No, not even a little bit. As as we mentioned, we started to forget it as soon as it was over. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, like the, the, the big old conceit about like he's a master of disguise. Like even that's not very like it's not as memorable as it should be. Like I'd rather go watch the Dana Carvey movie where he's not turtly enough for the turtle club. Like, I'd, rather, I'd rather watch that instead. I don't know if I'm willing to go that far. That 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 might be a bridge too far. I'm confident we'll talk about that movie at some point on this podcast as well. Probably. Probably. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> like, it's funnier than you remember. I Maybe. I don't know. I, all I, the thing, the two things I remember about that movie are the Turtle Club. Sure. Which apparently they filmed that scene on 9-11 or something. Oh, I did not know that. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a thing I heard. I remember having heard. And then Brent Spiner, Lieutenant Commander Data himself plays a character who farts constantly or like laughs so hard he farts. So every time he laughs, he ends up farting and gets really embarrassed about it and tries to blame it on someone else. Like that's his like main defining characteristic as a character. Am I, am I missing that? Is that right? Uh, I seem to recall that being a thing. Look, it's look, it's a movie for kids, but you know, sure. Dana Carvey's funny and that's maybe, sure. maybe that's the entire extent of it. Uh, uh, but <laughs> if you, if you want to, if you want to know why Dana Carvey wasn't a, a bigger deal, um, just watch Master of Disguise and because uh, that was his big swing, man. And uh, well, that and the Dana Carvey show, uh, which there's a great documentary about that on Hulu. So documentaries, we're just recommending them. We but, love them. Uh, that one is called Too Funny to Fail. Well, and I mean, you look back on it and you're like, the Dana Carvey show should have been a bigger deal because it's Dana Carvey hot off of SNL doing his own sketch comedy show. It, you know, Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert. Like before they were stars, it Robert Smigel doing cartoons like he did on SNL Saturday TV Funhouse. Like it's got everything going for it. Uh, and then the first sketch they did was Bill Clinton breastfeeding puppies, and they put it on right after Home Improvement. So, yeah, that, that was a bad decision. It was, uh, there was no audience for that show at all, at all. But what know. are you gonna do, man? I might have been, do? I might have been an audience for that show at the time, but I. Yeah, that honestly would not surprise me. Like I, it, I think the Dana Carvey show might still be on Hulu. You might, you might check it out because there's actually some really funny stuff on there. It was pretty groundbreaking in a lot of ways. Yeah, I feel like it probably falls into the same category as the Ben Stiller show. It's like underappreciated sketch comedy that you know nobody watched at the time, but was actually maybe ahead of its time. That's hundred percent what it is. Yeah, yeah. That's a hundred percent what it is. Yeah. So what would the sequel to this movie have looked like, Brett? Hell, man, I don't know. Uh, he, he's more of a Robin Hood character, and he probably doesn't ever mention Elizabeth Shue's character ever again, because that's how <laughs> these spy movies work. Or yeah, she, she dies off screen, or she leaves him for some reason. You know, she, the Bond she, excuse. She dies off screen, and then he is uh, avenging her in the next one or something. Yeah, um, probably. But yeah, I mean, it it probably would have just, they probably would have followed like a, a, a similar Bond template. There would have been a new villain, a new thing he has to steal. Maybe Inspector Teal gets more to do in the next one. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because this did not make the money they were hoping it would make. Uh, it uh, comes in second. It's opening weekend at the box office. Uh, but overall, it grosses. I remember reading that it, did modestly well just not good enough it it did do modestly well it earns about 61 million in the domestic box office uh 108 internationally so about 169 million dollars uh worldwide 
which, you know, is fine, but not really what you hope for when you're trying to kick off a franchise. No, another, you know, we want more money. We've made a decent amount of money, but we want more money. Correct. To keep you this know, going. It, it Consummate with the money that we've put into this movie, we were expecting a bigger turn, return on our investment. Uh, a sequel would probably cost more money. It's not worth it to us, given the amount that this made, to shell out more for a sequel. Yeah. That is, that's 100% the logic there. Yeah. Uh, so it comes in second place in its opening weekend. It makes $16.2 million. And it opens behind a comedy movie starring a comedy star that we have already mentioned once on this episode who starred in a movie opposite the star of this movie, Val Kilmer. Can you name the star, Brett? In uh, the movie we have also mentioned on this episode already. Is it Batman Forever? It's so Batman J- Forever. J- Jim Carrey? It's Jim Carrey. So can you name the movie? A 1997 high-concept Jim Carrey comedy? That also stars Val Kilmer? No, the comedy. this, this comedy does not star Val Kilmer. Oh, okay. I, I was real confused. I did not yeah, know yeah. what you were talking about. Sorry, no. Okay, so high concept comedy movie starring Jim Carrey. Late nineties. Late nineties. Late nineties is probably the mask. Uh no, mask is ninety-four. Okay, so uh, let's see. This is after two? No, that's ninety five ninety-six, I think. Okay, getting closer. Um what was that? Cable guy? Was cable guy after that? Nope, cable guy was before that. Okay, hold on. I'm fishing, I'm getting there. Give me a second. (laughs) You're 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 way too early in his career. Later, okay. Well, I mean, it's too early for Bruce Almighty, right? This uh, this I think is the one that he makes shortly after Cable Guy. I could be wrong. I'm actually looking it up right now. Viewers out there right now just screaming at their listening device. Yeah, you idiots! This is what it is. It's clearly. Uh, I will tell you if this helps you at all. I will tell you this movie also stars Carrie Elways and Maura Tierney and Jennifer Tilly, the bride of Chucky herself. Sure. This is his, this is his follow-up to the cable guy. So the cable guy is his first ever bomb after his run of hits that includes Ace Ventura, the mask dumb and dumber, which is all in one year. Those four, those three movies come out. Then Batman forever, Ace Ventura Two, cable guy in 96 Jim Carrey also had a great year in 95 between Batman Forever and Ace Ventura 2. Cable Guy in 96, and then in 1997, my final clue, it's a two-word title, but it's actually just the same word twice. Liar, liar. There you go. Liar, liar in its third week grosses $18 million, which is still $2 million more than the opening of The Same. Wow. I can't believe I forgot Liar, Liar. I mean, that is a bit of a gap there. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's, that's another hit that kind of propels him back again. But, like, that's the thing is Jim Carrey made so many movies in just, like, three years that he is already the biggest star in the world by 97. And it seems completely unfathomable because he made three massive hits in 94, two massive hits in 95, a flop in 96, and then the rebounds in 97. That's that's like four years and he's already done all of that. It's kind of insane. And it's also kind of insane that he got a flop and then immediately rebounded, even though, even though, yeah, cable guy, I think cable guy is an underrated Jim Carrey C- movie. Cable guy is really underrated. It's a, I, I am a, I'm a fan of dark comedies and that is a real, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of what Carrie's doing in that movie. Uh, but that is, he's making some big choices though. He's swinging, he's going for the fences. Um, oh yeah but that is a ben stiller movie and ben stiller's fingerprints are all over it yeah looking back you can really tell that That was i think one of his first director directorial movies and it it, it's got his fingerprints on it but you can tell he's still trying to find his find his sea legs a little bit uh in third place is the devil's own which i believe is that harrison ford josh hartnett movie or no that's the harrison ford brad brad pitt movie um this is like harrison ford on his way out um like again been the biggest star in the world forever and now he's not like so he's he's starting to fade a little bit that old feeling in number four which is apparently a bet midler dennis farina comedy directed by the late great carl reiner never seen it seems kind of funny though i like dennis farina i like carl reiner so maybe bet midler's pretty good too uh and then uh in fifth place a movie starring a washed up action star 
and an NBA star double team, which if I'm not mistaken, stars Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman. (laughs) All right. Yeah, that sounds like a hit. All right. I'm actually going to look this up uh, to make sure. Yes. Jean-Claude Van Damme, Dennis Rodman, double team. And also, oh, I forgot the villain in this movie. Mickey Rourke. Oh, boy. The poster is Van Damme, Rodman, Rourke. And like the names, Van Damme, Rodman, Rourke. And then uh, it's got uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme on one side, Rodman on the other, both like, you know, with guns kind of looking all menacing. And then down the center, they don't play by the rules. And then it's yeah. double team. And it's got like kind of like the outline of a globe kind of stretching up toward their faces. Uh, it's It doesn't look good. I think I remember seeing this in the $5 bin at Walmart when I was in college. Um, I can't imagine this. Is, if it's a good movie, let me know and I might check it out. Probably not, though. No, it's I probably can't. still at the bottom of that same $5 bin. <laughs> Just buried. If that movie, uh, if this is its opening weekend. It grosses $5 million uh, and uh, grosses a grand total of $11 million domestic. So uh, pretty big flop. Not what we would call a good multiplier. But yeah, so uh, the thermometer score on this one is a 30, 30% thermometer score, a Metacritic score of 50 based on 22 critic reviews. And uh, on Letterboxd, they give it a 2.7. Brett, what did you rate this movie out of five? Uh, so it was a one. Oh. Uh, and then we uh, I sort of, you know, discovered over the course of this episode, maybe it's an origin story that makes it a little bit better. We'll bump that up to a one and a half. Okay, whereas I gave it a two, because uh, I loves me what Ray Trebejas is doing in this movie. But yeah, generally not not favorable on this one. Uh, not Here's the thing. We've covered a lot of bad movies on this podcast, so it's not as bad as some of those, but it's, it's not as great as some of the others that we've covered as well. Because uh, we've covered some pretty great movies on this podcast so far as well. Yeah, which I, I, I pretty much threw it down there in the trash with the rest of them. Uh, yeah. Except for... Elizabeth Shue's performance and the surprise. It's an origin story? Question mark? Surprise origin story. Hey. Very so, badly telegraphed origin story. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's not great. Um, but you know, it Ray Trebeja is just chomping away at that scenery. And I I'm a sucker for Ray Trebeja in a movie, man. I I, I also like saying Ray Trebeja. So sure. I don't know if you could tell that listening to this episode or not, but any chance I get to say Rage Beja, I, I will say Rage Beja. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, because if I'm not, I'm going to look like a complete ass. But Well, I mean, hey, Rage Beja, please email us. Let us know if we're pronouncing your name right. Also, please come on the podcast. We also, please come on the podcast. We send out a lot of invites. We do. No one is no one's taking us up on those yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Time. We'll, we'll get there. One of these days, man, we're going to have a guest on this show. Uh, but yeah, if, 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 you are, if you or someone you know is Rage Beja, uh, please reach out to us at disenfranchpod at gmail.com and let us know so we can have you on the podcast. Uh, or you can hit us up on Twitter at disenfranchpod. Uh, you can find me on the Twitter machine. Uh, also, I'm on Instagram and Letterboxd at Chewy Walrus. Brett, where can we find you on the social medias? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, I don't know for how much longer, and uh, Letterboxd at Gunslinger Fired. Oh, the bad Star Wars takes are bringing you down, Brett. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Fans, We're, fans are bad, man. Just, just you know, you can go in and just mute Star Wars so you don't see anything about Star Wars. I've done that, but that means they have to say the words Star Wars. Oh, I see. That's not how muting works. They have to say oh. those two specific words in that specific way to have it be muted. Uh, so, if you just mention, you know, hey, those guys with those lightsabers, they, I really hate what they're doing. I'm going to see it. That sucks. Well, you can also mute lightsaber. See, here's the problem, Stephen. Now I got to go through and like mute any word related to Star Wars, even the slightest bit. I'm sorry, buddy. So, and it look, and it's not the, it's not even the fans. It's not even just the fans. It's me, isn't it? Uh, it's you and people like you. Uh, so here's the thing. I've come to the conclusion that Star Wars is no longer for me. I am now what like I was back in 2000, a man without a country. When it comes to Star Wars, I will continue to cling to what I love, as I mentioned in our solo episode. Um, but I'm I'm more or less out on the future of Star Wars. I'll probably see some of it, but I'm not going to be as as invested as I have been. So 
There you go. And thank you for just doing that instead of what other people are doing and just yelling about how much they hate it on the internet. I I mean I had my I had my screed a few weeks ago, which I mentioned on this podcast, and which people can go on my Twitter feed and find. Uh, shortly after um, the Disney investor meeting where they announced the future of Star Wars. But after the episode of The Mandalorian, after the finale of The Mandalorian, I just, I'm just kind of ready to tap out. A lot of people loved it. Uh, I loved most of it, but um, the ending did not sit well with me for many reasons, which if you want to know what those are, go listen to our solo episode. Honestly, if you're listening to our episode on The Saint, I have to figure you've listened to our episode on solo, even if it took you two sittings to get through, which... I get it. It was a long ass episode. I, I figure if you're if you're listening to an episode on the 1997 Val Kilmer movie The Saint, you listen to our movie on 2018 Solo: A Star Wars Story. I just have to assume. Yeah, probably. So you guys know all this already, but but yeah, I mean that's that's just kind. of, I mean, it, you and I have not talked about this other than just a brief text exchange right after the Mandalorian when I was getting really snarky, and yeah. you, you and were just kind of were like, you know what? shut up and i was like all right i'm done shutting up <laughs> yeah because it, it had been probably let's see what was it it was was it the next day or was it later that night it was it was late that evening yeah uh, yeah i like had, I had already o'clock. seen an entire day's worth of people screaming about how much they hated it and uh, here's the thing i wasn't trying i wasn't doing that out of any kind of ill will i was just like i was honestly i was trying to make a joke um, yeah, you didn't know. You didn't know that I was already pissed off about it. I, uh, so. I I didn't know that I was lighting that match so close to a powder keg is what I had no idea of. Yeah, so I can't hold that against you. I just might, you know, I felt burn really my Twitter now. to the ground because of it. So I felt really bad if it if it's any consolation. I mean, and I appreciate I, and that. I am sorry for setting you off. I really uh-huh. that was not my intention. I I appreciate that, man. But uh, so if if you uh, after you listen to this episode, if you go try to find my Twitter and it's not there anymore. You'll know why. Uh, and know that it's probably my fault. <laughs> uh, it's not your fault. You're, you're the straw that broke the camel's back. You're, you're not the <laughs> it's, giant. So it's my fault. No, you're not the giant bales of hay that got it to that point. <laughs> I'm just the tipping point, sure. Um, yeah. Find us on social media. If Brett's, if Brett's not on Twitter, you can still find him on Letterboxd because the discourse tends to be significantly less toxic on Letterboxd. So you can f- at least find him there. But do uh, come back next week. Uh, we'll talk about another failed franchise starter. Uh, you can bet your money on that. Um, this has been Disenfranchised. And we're a podcast where, you know, we, we disagree on some things, but we're still friends at the end of the day. It's okay. We don't hate each other. But, uh, but yeah, so this has been uh, this episode of Disenfranchised. It's been kind of a weird one. So, hey, thanks for joining us for this one. I mean, the ending's been weird, but it, it's it maybe has. my own fault for bringing it up. Hey, we didn't stick the landing, and that's fine. It was this has been a successful episode of Disenfranchised. I am Stephen Foxworthy, and for Brett Wright and myself, uh, have a great day, and uh, don't be a dick on Twitter. And have a happy New Year.